0: It's very interesting I was worth um, about over a million dollars when I was 23 and over ten million dollars when I was 24 and over a hundred million dollars when I was 25 um, and it's it wasn't that important uh, because I never did it for the money uh, I I think money is a wonderful thing because it enables you to do things. It enables you to in- invest in ideas that don't have a short-term payback and things like that. But especially at that point in my life, it was it was not the most important thing. The most important thing was the company, the people, the products we were making, what we were going to enable people to do with these products. So uh, I didn't think about it a great deal. You know, I never sold any stock and just really believed that the company would would do very well over the long term.
1: Welcome to the 35th episode of the Noted Bitcoin podcast. Uh, today we have a repeat guest, Seyfudinamos, who was on about a year ago or maybe even a little more now. Uh, and that was our most popular episode by far. So we're very excited to have you back. Uh, and uh, now you're, you're only more popular now than you were back then, despite the, the price going down. <laughs>
2: yeah That's also more time. unpopular as well thank you so much uh michael and pierre it's, uh, it's a pleasure to be here this was one of my first it's not the first interview i did and uh still possibly probably the most fun so let's see if we can top it today
1: <laughs> yeah Um uh, so all right uh now do do we have any uh announcements do you have another book
2: coming out safe yet um, no, I, I I don't want to saddle myself with an obligation to start writing, but uh, no, I'm working on my uh, monthly research bulletin, so I decided that um, waiting for publishers to uh, get a book out is just too painful. It took me about a year from finishing publishing my book last time around to have it having it published, so uh, to get myself to be able to write more and to... Um, Be able to be read more I think the best thing to do is to try and just go directly peer-to-peer publishing essentially so I'm set up a patreon account where if you're interested in uh, reading my writing you can uh, contribute and receive a monthly uh, bulletin of research on economics I've done three so far just sent out a third one uh, a couple days ago and the last one was on bitcoins energy consumption and whether or not Bitcoin is going to destroy the planet find out by subscribing today yeah
1: and th- these are these are like extremely high quality it's not like a blog post like this is 22 pages long uh, and it's just a straight hundred percent safety and wisdom dropping uh, so I, I been, definitely uh, hi- highly recommend people sign up for it
3: I haven't read the latest Thank one because you. you just dropped it last night uh, but uh, you know I've read the other two and these also aren't just rehashes of the same old stuff. I've actually learned a lot, despite having been in Austrian economics for, you know, eight or nine years and Bitcoin for six. Uh, I still have learned a lot of new concepts and ideas um, from these newsletters. So these are these are are, are seriously worth reading.
2: Thank you, thank you, Michael. Yeah, I think the idea is they're like book chapters, so it's um, it's like a fa- instead of waiting another year to write another book and then waiting another year to get it published out, it's better to be writing these chapters one by one now and getting feedback on them from people. And uh, so far, you know, I think the feedback has been uh, positive. It's uh, it, 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 they they might as well just be added on to the last chapter of my book. I think in terms of the way that I wrote them. So uh, yeah, I hope uh, people keep uh, liking them.
1: Yeah, it's funny because like book publishing it it makes a lot of sense and I I like physical books a lot. Um but at the same time uh there it's it seems like a little bit archaic in, in the processes that they have set up. Like you should be able to just add chapters and then the next edition that they print, they just it's just a longer book. Um but yeah.
3: Yeah, what I'd like to see is uh better publishing tool chains. You know, there there exists some some basic ones and some not so basic ones. Um uh a friend uh, Michael Hartle who wrote uh the Ruby on Rails tutorial, he has mm-hmm. a um he has a a self publishing platform that's geared towards some of the technical writing. Um it, it's it's called soft cover, it's very good. And I'd like to see more stuff like that. I know O'Reilly has their Atlas program, but it'd be great for self-publishers like, you know, Safedine to be able to have a Git repo that just has it. And just every time there's a new release, it automatically publishes the really nice, uh, PDF and EPUB and Mobi file. Um, these things like they're almost there, but not quite to my, uh, you know, standard um it'd be great to see that kind of stuff because their books are fantastic but they definitely uh the the publishers are dinosaurs and
2: um yeah i mean the one the one thing that i'll have to say is that um you know the where they do add value is pre-screening the fact that you get one of these major publishers to publish your book uh, gets a lot of people to take it seriously and this is i think especially valuable for your first book. So I thought it was worth it for the first book to do it with a traditional publisher to just sort of get that uh, um, you know, imprint of quality. This isn't just some uh, you know, swiftly hashed together um, thing that someone self-published on Amazon, which you know most people are not, not likely to take very seriously. But I think now I have more freedom in terms of just being able to experiment with ways of uh, writing directly to people.
3: Definitely. Well, and, and it, 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 you, your book was actually, you know, it, it seemed like based on what the, the numbers I heard that it was actually a rather popular title for Wiley.
2: So, yeah, for, for for its category, it's an academic book. It's a hardcover book. And it wasn't one of the, uh, you know, it wasn't made to be a, um, a paperback or a bestseller. Um, so it, it didn't do badly for its little niche uh, audience.
1: It might even end up in an airport bookstore.
2: It has. It has. The only oh, really? sightings I've heard about in the wild have been in uh, Hong Kong and Singapore airports so far. I've yet to see it in the wild. I've I've yet to go to a bookstore that has it, but I've uh, heard that it exists in some bookstores around the U.S. and Canada. But I've only seen photos of uh, airport sightings. So yeah, I have made it.
3: I, I live near a uh, an independent bookseller. And I, I had a plan at one point, but I, I never mustered up the the manpower to just every day have a different person walk in and ask if they have the Bitcoin yeah. Standard in stock until they get gaslit into thinking that they really need to hold it.
1: Well, Michael, couldn't you also like buy ten copies and then go to Half Price Books and sell them back to Half Price Books in different locations? So then they that's have a good it on idea the idea too. Yeah. <laughs> Lose a few dollars a in the process, but you're seeding some good uh, hodler material. <laughs> um no, that's that's great. And um yeah, so the the latest one was about uh Bitcoin mining. Uh you had two before the, uh one was about fractional reserve banking, is that right? Mm-hmm. And the other one was about what hyper-Bitcoinization would look like?
2: Yeah, or, you know, how, how a Bitcoin economy could grow. And right. so generally, people tend to think that it's going to have to be, uh, that the whole world is going to burn in a Venezuelan hyperinflationary pile of rubble. And, uh, you know, people who watch a lot of movies, uh, as well as people who come from uh, the gold bug background, might be inclined towards these sort of... Uh, vindictive endings to monetary stories, but uh, It doesn't have to be that way And I think uh, there are pretty good reasons to imagine that uh, it doesn't I think one major point which I haven't heard discussed in many places is the idea that people talk about Bitcoin reducing demand for fiat currency, which I think is true, but very few people have heard mention the effect that it will have on the supply of fiat currency because Um, The creation of money in the current uh, monetary system is dependent upon the creation of loans. And so when you go and you borrow, the bank effectively is bringing new money into existence. That's how the system works. And so if people start migrating towards the Bitcoin economy, not only will they want to hold fewer dollars, they will also want and need to take on fewer dollar-denominated loans which will lead to the reduction of the creation of dollars. So I wouldn't ex- necessarily expect that it would be hyperinflationary. I think if we were to see a hyperinflationary scenario, it would be, you know, it would, Bitcoin wouldn't be the catalyst for the hyperinflation. The, the, the catalyst for the hyperinflation would have to be um, the monetary policy going batshit, basically. Right. Uh, you know, Bitcoin may benefit Venezuelans, Venezuelans might use it, Um, But it isn't Bitcoin that caused the collapse of the Venezuelan economy that was self-inflicted. And so, um, if if a central bank is not going crazy, increasing its money supply and printing, a growth in the number of people using Bitcoin, it'll reduce the demand for its currency, but it'll also reduce the supply of it. The effect might be a wash. They might manage to maintain a 2% inflation um, number like they like to present they have for quite a while um, while the Bitcoin economy continues to grow. So I don't necessarily think that it, it, it has to follow that scenario. And I talk about that at, at lens in that.
1: Yeah, and I found it really interesting because I've always had the the opposite perspective. Um, and because like it, for, from my view, I was kind of looking at it from the lens of speculative attacks like we saw with George Soros where, Basically, you 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 borrow uh, in the local currency and then uh, in the weak currency uh, to buy the ber- the strong currency, um, and then you you cover your loan afterwards when your speculative operation has you know succeeded in turning a profit, um, and that that's arguably inflationary in the sense of what you were describing if, uh, if you're borrowing from the fractional reserve banking system, um, but uh, really that that depends on the monetary authorities in the banking system allowing you to do that Uh, and they there's kind of two ways of preventing you from doing that one would be to raise interest rates uh, so that it's cost prohibitive and essentially that would transform the us dollar into a sound money uh, because it's trying to compete with bitcoin Uh, the other is to just do credit controls right where they uh artificially limit your ability to borrow because they know what you're up to uh, and exactly. Just, if you've ever mentioned
2: happen. Bitcoin on your social media anywhere, you know, you just get blackballed from getting U.S. dollar credit. You could see a system like that developing. That's why I think, you know, it's, it's more likely that we're going to get a, a global financial apartheid uh, of, you know, government controlled central banks um, and their bullshit fake money, fake economy, uh, basically feeding people soy and high fructose corn up and telling them, see, progress is great. And then, on the other hand, you have people using sound money being able to perform the functions of central banking without having to rely on these central planners in an economy built on hard money, where the only way you can make that money is to work and provide value for people. So um, I think you know we could have this sort of scenario uh, coexisting for quite a while. You know, the Bitcoin economy is still very small, so um, they they can effectively manage creation of credit because i mean banking is becoming so incredibly centralized and central banks have such a stronghold over the economy that the thing is becoming more and more soviet in, in the way that it's done and if you look at the soviet union you know they were able to last for quite a while um with these um, price controls and so on so um it's um it it, it it might not necessarily come to uh a, a very dramatic ending very soon it might just drag on for quite a while
1: which is fine by me because i've when i first got into bitcoin i was thinking like all right next year bitcoin's gonna take mm-hmm. over because yada yada exactly. um and and my time preferences lowered uh, <laughs> since then, and and now I, I, I I'm enjoying the process. I'm enjoying the journey, and it'll almost yeah. be kind of a um uh like looking back on my life, like oh, I I wish we'd been in this process for longer. You know, it's like seeing your your child grow up. You don't want that to fly by too quickly.
2: Exactly. I, th- I think it would be a nice thing to spend the rest of our lives observing, you know, th- so that it comes to a a, a a nice conclusion towards our sunset years. Yeah. Um, I-, I wouldn't mind that kind of <laughs> ending. <laughs>
3: it-, it gives us more time to be <clears throat> building and figuring out, um, you know, how-, how Bitcoin fits into all this. I actually would worry about hyperinflationary scenarios for a multitude of reasons. First off, uh, you know, I, I-, I think people... I don't think people appreciate just how how scary the idea of a society losing its money is. That's not that's not mere, you know, inconvenience. That's full on societal breakdown.
1: Yeah. And Um, arguably like that's what caused World War Two right in the Holocaust. So uh, we should be very (laughs) careful about (laughs) cheering that on.
3: Yeah, Yeah. it's it's uh, it's absolutely horrifying proposition. and then, uh, um, now I actually I, I lost my train of thought on the second part, which is uh, the more pertinent one here. But um, yeah, like it, hyper hyperinflation is is not something uh, to be desired, and we don't. I you know I for one I don't want to see destruction in society. I want us to keep building. Uh, so the more that we can peacefully transition. Um, yeah. I- into, a, into a new structure, the better. And we have this all the time is, yeah. in the world. Bitcoin is not, B- B- Bitcoin yeah. is forever. So,
2: <laughs> Yeah, and, and the thing is, the, this is the, the primary thing. Hyperinflation doesn't just happen because the currency collapses. It happens because the currency collapses and people have no alternative. You, know, you can't just go back to bartering uh, stuff again when you live in a city that is highly specialized where nobody produces anything that they themselves consume and everyone is dependent on a very specialized network of trade. So you need a form of money, you need a banking system for that and if that is monopolized to a governmental shitcoin, once that shitcoin collapses, the whole banking system is inoperable. But what we have with Bitcoin is you know, we're not going to get this situation where people are left stranded without a banking system, I think, because people are going to just be migrating towards the new monetary system of Bitcoin and you know that system is just going to grow as more and more people grow into it while the other system won't necessarily collapse because as i was saying you know the demand is declining as well as the supply um or at least the speed of the increase of the supply so it could just end up looking like an ordinary upgrade you know it's taken us maybe 30 years to move from primarily reading newspapers to now just reading things online and there's still some newspapers around but you know, it's it takes time for the capital structure to switch from one way to the other, but there's, as long as you have the alternative, the technological alternative for people to use, to still be able to take part in a global division of labor, I think we needn't worry too much about a hyperinflationary scenario.
3: Yeah. Well, and, and the uh, the other issue that was coming to mind that I was that I was trying to get out was just that, you know, there's still so much Bitcoin infrastructure that needs to be built. Uh, Pierre and I were yeah. just discussing his his node launcher um, that he's been working on, and it's a it's a rather uh, basic piece of software, but it's it's coming with a big splash. And it seems odd that ten years into Bitcoin. Uh, such a piece of software would make a big splash, but um I'm glad that someone's finally you but know, building Michael, stuff it, like that. It's only
1: making a big splash because I'm pumping it up, right? It's not hey, uh, important.
3: Keep pumping, brother. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but but the point is, is, like, you know, is the banking system, or the financial system at large even ready to be moving to Bitcoin? And you know, the more time we have to to slowly integrate things uh into bitcoin i think that's just better for everyone uh you know as possible so uh you know i'm i'm glad that hyperinflation need not be uh the catalyst for this because that comes with way more problems than I think you yeah.
2: want to... to yeah, everybody needs to take their time to figure out how to uh, get here and to get over their issues with it. And you know, hopefully the no-coiners and the Keynesians will be the last uh, <laughs> to pass by it. And the first will be last and the last will be first, basically.
1: <laughs> and, and the other thing too is, to, as I think about this, um, it would have actually been a bad outcome if uh, we essentially had a hyperinflation, let's say in like 2014 or at the end of 2013, um, yeah, and essentially, uh, at that point, there was no layer two lightning like proposal or anything, and everyone's energy would have been into, okay, we need to increase the block size limit because otherwise we're going to have you know not enough transactional capability t- to get through this hyper Bitcoinization event. and it would have gotten centralized. And then, you know, only yeah. the miners would have controlled the monetary policy and we'd be back to square one, except that it's miners controlling the monetary policy.
2: Yeah, we, we need better quality hodlers to get there. You know, we okay. currently have a lot of people who got rich very lucky, very quickly by just holding coins. You know, people like Roger Ver, who just think um, they're geniuses and they're just going to have to stupidly find their way to getting rid of all their coins eventually. And so that, you know, um, the people who hold the coins aren't just a bunch of idiots. Um, once we have them widely distributed and more and more normal people hold them, you'll get less volatility and less uh, um, emotional uh, people giving Bitcoin a bad name and a bad image. So it's going to be a while. It takes time. But, you know, that's what we're here for, to walk you through it and <laughs> help you.
3: <laughs> Saifedean Amus, bear market enthusiast. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Well, you know, it is it is a period
1: of uh, like distribution in the sense of like when the price goes up a lot, uh, people who are holding a lot of coins, it makes sense for them to like, quote unquote, diversify and, you know, reduce their exposure to Bitcoin because they're like 100 percent of their balance sheet is Bitcoin. Um, And that gives the opportunity for new people to be accumulating, uh, you know, to go from zero percent of their assets in Bitcoin to like one or two percent. Uh, And then, you know, rinse, wash, repeat uh, with each cycle.
2: Yeah, and and just distributing the risk of the growth because it's not going to be steady and people need to diversify in and out of it at certain points. So it's going going to take time.
1: The most surprising development, I think, from from this cycle that I was not expecting was uh, people using Bitcoin as collateral to borrow fiat against it. Uh, What do you make of that safe?
2: Yeah, it's quite interesting. Um, I think it's um, it's 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 beginning to spread quite a bit, and it, it it sort of makes sense. I think we're going to also see more and more lending happening in amongst miners because I think miners are the uh, uh, you know the, the, they're the people who primarily have a Bitcoin income, and so they're the ones who are going to start likely uh, using that. But it's it, it's quite interesting. I haven't really looked in depth into. It uh bitcoin credit markets but it's something worth uh, looking at there's quite a few places in canada that are also doing this um, bitcoin Mm -hmm. collateralized lending
3: yeah here in austin there's the company unchained capital that's doing that
1: yeah and it's funny because one of the one of the criticisms that keynesians will level against bitcoin is that oh well you can't use this as you you can't lend bitcoins because if the value goes up uh, then the borrower essentially has to default because the the you know the cost of repaying the debt just exploded by 10x.
3: Yeah. Well, it's not just Keynesians that have made that argument. Uh, I basically heard that argument at Mises University in 2013 from, I think it was uh, uh, Jeffrey Herbiner. It was the argument that Bitcoin could not be money because it was deflationary too much like too, too deflationary. <laughs> it, was, it, was a very, it was a very bizarre argument to have with such an esteemed uh Austrian scholar.
2: Yeah, and the thing about it is that I think I think the connection that people miss is that the fact that money is hard and is likely to appreciate is what drives people to want to lend it at a lower interest rate. Because primarily the uh you, you know just holding on to the money is going to increase in value, but there is the cost and the risk of securing it. So lending it out allows you to um basically give somebody else the hassle and the risk of um handling it and then y- if it's appreciating then you need a lower and lower interest rate so effectively hard money and this is again the connection that keep making hard money is what drives time preference lower and lower and lower
1: Yep, um and so we, well, we haven't seen any, like, actual fractional reserve banking with Bitcoin. With Mt. Gox, we saw where essentially they created, like, Gox coins that were redeemable in Bitcoin because they were essentially insolvent. Um, but the, the challenge I've always had in my mind is, like, the, 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 the lack of fungibility between any kind of fractional reserve, like, money substitute token, like Gox coins, <laughs> And Bitcoins, right? Like you you, you can't send them to an address or anything like that. Um, So do you think that there would be fractional reserve banking that would be possible uh, on Bitcoin? I know this is a a hot topic.
2: No, generally I've, um, you know, I didn't really get into this in my book because at that point, it's something that I hadn't looked into in quite a while. And I thought it was uh, just uh, the book already had enough on it, and without any need to get into this old uh, topic. But you know that was the topic of the first bulletin that I looked, that I worked on. So I, I went back and I got back into the debate and started reading a lot of the work of uh, the old Austrians on this. And I think the conclusion that I've arrived at is this: that fractional reserve banking can't really work with a hard monetary system, and. All the time throughout the 19th century, whenever it was being tried, and even before, you know, when uh, when fractional reserve banking was tried, that was what caused the business cycles under the gold standard, and it would cause the crises and recessions that were taking place. And the move towards creating the central bank came because. Of the incompatibility of the gold standard with fractional reserve banking. I mean, this is really the key point that you have to have a central bank that doesn't use gold as money, that has uh, its own uh, money that it can uh, create effectively at low cost in order to prop up a banking system. So you have to get rid of the gold standard in order to keep the fractional reserve banking system functioning. And the way that they got rid of the gold standard, of course, is you know it wasn't market competition that drove out gold it was gold confiscation and it was the takeover of or you know the banning of gold banking so banks were taken over and it's that that was a trivial thing it wasn't a military problem because there's a few banks and it's largely centralized so um you know it, it was possible to take over uh, central banks and take over the gold reserves and that's what allowed the fiat money system to continue to let fractional reserve banking operate. Without a lender of last resort, I think it would be completely unstable and I think um, any attempt to try and pass off, knock off Bitcoin as Bitcoin is not going to work um, and it's going to be far less successful than any similar attempt with gold for the simple reason that You know, government could stop you from using gold anywhere outside of people you can deal with with your own hand, you know, physically hand over physical coins, which at this point is practically useless because most of the economic commerce that you do every day is with people from all over the world. And so, having money in your hand is not that important compared to having a banking infrastructure and capability denominated in that currency. So, only because government could stop that from operating around gold. Could they have a monetary system built around fiat money, which they could then use to prop up a fractional reserve banking system? So I don't think you can do the same thing with Bitcoin, or at least Bitcoin has a much better chance of resisting that, which is why it's interesting. And so I think you know anybody who tries it is uh, is not going to have much luck because you know ultimately with all these many thousands of nodes and the easy cost of having an on-chain final settlement transaction and that's the difference with gold, you know, having a global on-chain settlement transaction with gold is extremely expensive, but with Bitcoin it costs a few cents. So with the global accessibility of that, far more people are able to access final layer settlement than in gold and so therefore far fewer people will have any incentive to accept gold uh, Bitcoin substitutes on par with Bitcoin. I think that's ultimately why anybody who makes Bitcoin substitutes We'll have them trade at the discount at which they were backed uh, at which they are backed by bitcoin
1: yeah, and it's funny because you'll have you'll have B cashers be like oh well you know if if uh <laughs> transaction fees go up to fifty dollars, then it's just like as expensive as moving gold, which clearly they've never paid to move any amount of gold right. <laughs> Um, if, if I think that uh, it was Germany that uh, shipped gold uh, from the U.S. to to themselves, and it cost millions of dollars, like it, that's a completely different order of magnitude uh, for the same amount of value.
3: It's all tongue
1: Yeah, right. Yeah, and uh, and then the cost of verification to make sure that they actually received gold. Uh, you know that 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 has to be taken into account as well. So. Um, they're, exactly,
2: they're, Bitcoin transaction fees can go up to a hundred thousand dollars and still be pretty competitive with gold, probably.
1: <laughs> well, and and if they go up that high, that means that the value of the existing, you know, eighteen million bitcoins has also gone astronomical. So it's not it's not like your your little stash of one bitcoin now becomes uneconomical to move. It's that that one bitcoin is now worth way more than it was, uh, and I think that the the fees will always be roughly proportional to the value of the the bitcoin network but we'll, we'll see how that shakes out
3: i've actually I wanted yeah. to to look at historical uh bitcoin fees denominated in bitcoin in satoshi what are the, yeah yeah one of the biggest problems like people people always refer to the dollar price not you know in, instead of how much uh how many bitcoins are being spent. So they're operating on a completely, you know, fundamentally wrong unit of account for analyzing this.
1: I I disagree. I think that the unit of account is appropriate for them personally, because they are living (laughs) paycheck to paycheck and doing spend and replace and are otherwise pretty poor.
3: Yeah. It's, it's the wrong unit of account when you're trying to imagine what is good for a long term. right? civilizational uh, money. Yeah, that's what I mean, of course. And um, yeah, if I, I remember, the, you know, you can go look at old Bitcoin transactions and there are literally fees of an entire Bitcoin. So if yeah. anything, I think Bitcoin fees have, have in many ways gone down over time.
1: Um, and that's without getting into lightning, right?
3: Yeah, yeah. <laughs>
1: the fees are going to be trivial there.
3: It's something that I've yeah. always found kind of interesting about um, Bitcoin transaction fees, uh, which is something that you sort of touched upon. It's just like, you know, you have to, with, with everything else, whether it's, you know, uh, credit cards or gold or whatever, the fees are just like broken down into this like crazy array of different costs. And with Bitcoin, it's just like, it's the single price because it's just like you, you, you get to do the verification and everything yourself. It's literally yeah. just you need that transaction timestamped. And so you, you get to bring this cost down to just like one, uh, you know, one amount, and I think that's uh, that's interesting.
2: Yep. Yeah, and it's going to be expensive because it's worth it. And that's fundamentally what it comes down to, it. and people need to learn to deal with that.
3: Yep. And that seems to be a, something, and you know, I'm sure you go all deep into this on your your energy market, uh, you know, bulletin but people are very yeah. difficult at understanding subjectivist economics and understanding that the reason someone pays for something is because it's worth it
2: exactly yeah, yeah yeah which only applies for the things that you like but not what other people like because you know other people are selfish and they don't care about the environment
3: they're greedy and
2: <laughs> exactly
3: so i have a question for you uh you know mm-hmm after the book came out and you know well before there's been a lot of uh blowhard criticism from people you know like the francis Coppola's yes. and david gerard <laughs> of the world um yes you know alcohol fueled you know <sighs> rants rant, yeah yeah like you know screens um, <laughs> that being said i'm curious to know Uh, whether it was, you know, feedback while writing the book, or, um, you know, after publishing and people giving feedback on the final product, uh, what are some of the most interesting criticisms that you received of your work? work, um, If if it was while writing, how did it change uh, some of the arguments you made? And, uh, or if it was after, like, you know, have you changed your mind on anything? Will there be you know, updates in a theoretical second edition. Irata.
2: Yeah. Well, there's one uh, quite embarrassing bit of errata, which is just the first exact first word of the book, which starts on November 1st when Satoshi Nakamoto, and it turns out it was only November 1st when he sent that email in possibly Australia and Japan maybe. But he, for all practical intensive purposes, Although, hang on a second, so, course, Nakamoto is a Japanese name, so I guess you could give him time <laughs> zone for the Japan. So, yep, that wasn't wrong either, it, I guess.
3: entirely of the, you know, the, the Stefan Lavera side of the beef Yes, <laughs> Exactly,
2: yes. I guess I'm going to just tap the side of Stefan on that one. Bitcoin originated in, uh, you know, tomorrow, basically. Always <laughs> one day ahead of us uh, here. Um, but no, I mean, to be That's honest, true. like these, um, these uh, sort of bitter no coiners, creeds um, haven't really contributed anything uh, substantive in terms of criticism. The thing is, there's a few key ideas of my book that, unfortunately, none of these people has even um, considered. So many of the reviewers on Amazon will talk about it. One of the reviewers uh, in Reason magazine, at least, gave a good account of some of these ideas, but. All of these, the, the astonishing thing about these reviews and the reason that I just didn't waste any time responding to them is that they are just a DDoS attack. You know, they are a distributed denial of service attack on you where they just read the book and then shower you with dozens of quibbles and dozens of ways in which they don't understand the book. And so responding to them is just explaining to them why they don't understand economics and providing them with readings about economics. And the sad thing about this is that, you know, I've written the book, and if you didn't understand these things, if you think, um, you know, if if your criticisms are just these basic misunderstandings, then responding to you is gonna provide a lot of people uh, the first inter- the first interaction that they will get with my writing will just be responding to you, trying to dumb it down to the level of you know some basic no coiner who's never read any Ludwig von Mises in their life, and trying to basically try and dumb it down and frankly i have no reason to do that it's a waste of time these are just extremely long and pointless reviews and it, you know people can read my book read her review or his review and make their own mind up and frankly you know people who are going to w- make their mind on my book based on what they read on the blog of some bitter no-coiner are exactly the kind of people that i don't want reading my book in the first place and wasting my time on twitter with their objections to my book so i'm Quite thankful for these people for providing that sort of filter that, you know, the sort of people who follow them and who appreciate their writing were naturally drawn away from my book, which I think is um, a very valuable service. And, um, but yeah, more seriously, going back to the ideas of the book, I think the issue is this. Like, there are, I would say six key points that I, I was thinking of this the other day. You know, I could, I could, I wrote them down because I think it's, it's worth noting, you know, six key ideas I think in my uh, book. The first one is um, the choice of money and its relation to the stock to flow ratio, and that's the first few chapters of the book. Then the relationship between money, hardness of money and time preference, the relation between hard money and, you know, healthy capital markets and um, business cycles and all of that stuff and inflation recessions, the relation between hard money and the size of government and individual freedom. This is number four. And then number five, moving on to Bitcoin, is you know, how Bitcoin is hard money, how the difficulty adjustment in Bitcoin relates to that. And then number six, why Bitcoin is likely more resistant to confiscation than uh, gold, why it would likely have a better chance against government confiscation than gold. These are, I think, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, uh, if you can think of another one, but I think these six would likely be the ma- most general ideas of my book. And I don't recall hearing any criticism that is directed at any of these ideas. And so people get bogged down in the details. A lot of people get really upset that I say mean things about John Maynard Keynes, which I think says a lot about these people, that, you know, that they find all of the things that Keynes did to be worth you know not worth getting on but they think that me mentioning those things disqualifies my book from consideration
1: they're so easily distracted right (laughs) (laughs) yeah yeah it's it's, like a a footnote
3: footnote.
2: yeah
3: a footnote those of all i mean it's the same thing like uh you know the the incredible uh democracy the god that failed by hans herman hoppe you know there's like one or two footnotes that's all people remember about the book. And, you know, theres yeah. I, I'm sure that there's, you know, debate to be had about those points, but they're so incredibly minor compared yeah. to the, the entirety of the whole book. And likewise with this, it's, you know. But
2: I, I, I'm not I am mean, don't... He, he was yeah. an
3: awful man.
2: <laughs> he was an awful man. I think it's completely relevant. but and, and I definitely don't regret putting it in the book. And if I could do it again, I would. Because I think it's a great filter really because you know the sort of people who get upset about this the sort of people who get uh, you know agitated about the fact that you're mentioning this have very different priorities and and they're also the sort of people who completely miss on the point of time preference i mean francis coppola's review just didn't even mention any of this stuff about time preference or she she would just characterize all of the three chapters in the middle of my book that you know oh basically government is bad and so then moves on to you know Quibbling with uh, little power So or uh, there was a, there was a similar review in Cato, which also you know just uh, completely yeah. missed all of these points and just went on about how, uh, you know, he, uh, the, yeah, how could he say something like that about Keynes? I think it says it, it, you know you would expect that from an intern at Cato, but it says a lot about Cato that they just you know instead of actually engaging with Bitcoin um they, they they dismiss this and just give some intern uh a review well, to i think they've
3: at. i think Cato has always been threatened by by bitcoin to some degree i mean they've they've had uh you know plenty of talks at their uh you know various conferences from people that just say wildly incorrect things about bitcoin um i I forget some of their names well, but yeah the, the bitcoin is bitcoin ha, its main competitor is the Fed. But in many ways, Cato is a large competitor as well, because Cato wants to be able to write policy papers about the Fed. They need the Fed yeah. to exist in order for them to like talk about what they think. Uh, you know, they, they want to be in the Fed so they can be like, oh, well, we need to have this kind of free banking as opposed to you know, just shutting down the whole thing. Um, and but Bitcoin, also yeah, and, and Bitcoin
2: threatens and, that. <laughs> yeah, and it's also out there threatening the market share of people out there looking for sound money and solutions to monetary policy. So you know one option is you buy Bitcoin, another one is you subscribe and donate to Cato and get a lot of policy briefs and stuff, so it's, it's, uh, <laughs> it's and then market just... realities out there.
1: On on their wider policy objectives of having less government, like Bitcoin, uh, plausibly could accomplish that much more effectively than their lobbying of bureaucrats, right? Um, so if it means that governments have a harder time to of taxing people, or the taxes are felt more clearly because of the lack of inflation, uh, then the size of government and the scope of government will, will shrink. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I didn't I didn't like Cato before I got into Bitcoin. So I continue to not like them. And uh, I guess that's Beltway Libertarianism for you.
2: <laughs> exactly. It's Beltway Libertarianism. And there was something I think that they kicked out Murray Rothbard, which I think, you know, yes, is, uh, that's it. That's beyond so, the pale.
1: So f- who, who are you, some of your like favorite, but also kind of old school, like like Austrian economists, I'm thinking like the Mengers, the Bombalorks, the 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 kind of lesser known figures. N- not not the Rothbard deep cuts. Yeah, the deep cuts.
2: Um, I mean, I'd say I'm you know, I'm I'm not gonna go hipster on you. I'm just a uh, vanilla <laughs> uh, Rothbard fanboy. Okay. not nothing exotic here. I'm just you know popular uh, kid uh, going for the Rothbard <laughs> like all the popular kids you know <laughs> yeah we've all been to high school we know the Rothbard kids um, But uh, um, I'd say the, uh, the the one economist that I think is um, other than uh, the, that I would say highly under appreciated he's not exactly an economist he was a banker but he wrote one book uh, which was hugely influential in, in, in um, not just my book but in, in turning my mind on to the issue of sound money and its relation to time preference and individual freedom and economic uh, prosperity and so on. And his name is Ferdinand Lips. He's a Swiss banker and he, um, you know, he, he lived through the period of you know, the, the abandonment of the gold standard across the world and watched as Switzerland was the last country to abandon it. So, you, he, you know, he comes from that world of gold. He thinks and talks like somebody from a civilized um, place, even though he lived in the same 20th century that uh, we remember. Um, but uh, the 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 way in which he talks about the issue and and his writing is uh, quite astonishing and eye opening. He's read a lot of old history and a lot of money, and um, his book is criminally underread. Nobody Nobody talks about it. It's called Gold Wars. Um, it's 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 not uh, widely available, but if you look online, I'm sure you'll find the PDF. It's, it's somewhat out there. I highly recommend it.
1: The, that's the beauty of piracy, is that it allows us to disseminate some as dot that is not allowed. <laughs>
3: yeah. All kinds of forgotten exactly. works, and it serves a very important purpose.
2: Yep.
1: So uh, the uh, getting off the gold standard reminded me of this issue of uh, ICOs, and I've seen... <laughs> I have this. I have. I have. Yeah. I have this theory. I have this theory that, like, countries came off the gold standard in order of how shitty their governments were, right? And so Switzerland was the last one because they had the best government. So I think that we're going to see governments do ICO scams in order of how shitty they are. So we started with Venezuela, <laughs> and we'll just go from
3: theres well, um, Isn't yeah. isn't Iran working on? shitcoin now they have to be
2: they're next <laughs> <laughs> they gotta be yeah people talk about but, all these countries that are sanctioned by the us going and moving towards um, bitcoin and no i'm with pierre they're gonna have to go through the shitcoin phase well repeatedly. the the, the weird
3: exception though is that you know there's all these reports of north korea being into bitcoin
1: well, Bitcoin mining, right? And it's to get yeah. their hands on hard currency. And same thing in Venezuela. They've been like seizing mining equipment to get hard currency to, to, to mine Bitcoins. But uh, I actually I, I think that I, I disagree with you on safe with you on, on this safe because they are doing ICOs to get their hands on Bitcoins, right? And so they're selling the shit coin and marketing it to people so that uh, then they receive bitcoins and it's the same thing with the, you know, the rest of the ICO scammers in, in the private sector. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so, uh, it's, it's a way of, uh, yeah, scamming people out of their bitcoins, uh, yeah, but let's face it. I mean,
2: uh, who, who's going to get the private keys? Is it going to go to the public treasury or oh, are they no. going to be, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's not going to be public. Uh, you know, it's not going to be governments going and ICO and, and then taking the bitcoins and, um, going on gold on a bitcoin standard no
3: no no
1: I, I
2: don't oh, no,
3: no, no. and of course, of course like you know these people are so corrupt that yeah like you know as you said like who's gonna have the private keys it's gonna immediately get you know disappear yeah. somehow and uh um, oops we lost it you know yeah. people, people are going to turn up <laughs> dead and there's gonna yeah. be all kinds of, of terrible drama um i don't around. know
2: if we're gonna see a hollywood movie about a Third world country that mines Bitcoin and becomes, uh, you know, and then has a power struggle over 100 billion dollars of uh, on a on a treasure somewhere. Well, or it's, it's going to actually as... happen in real life first.
1: <laughs> yeah, it, it's kind of the same problem of the resource curse, right? When countries have oil, uh, they, they, yeah. they end up in a very difficult political situation,
3: like Venezuela, <laughs> for example. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, and so
1: I, I, I foresee like eventually, like Switzerland's going to do an ICO, right? And they're going to use the, the brand that they've built on the Swiss franc uh, to create like a digital version uh, so that they can get bitcoins and like whether they have political institutions that can, you know, keep those private keys, uh, quote unquote, public <laughs> or, or they end up in someone's back pocket. <laughs> um, but yeah, I,
3: I feel like that's something that's been underexplored. This brings up an interesting uh, question, though, um, on the rhetoric, because let's imagine that this does indeed happen, which sounds completely plausible. Um, as that's happening, we've had people for years saying that, oh, there can be coin and all of this stuff. So rhetorically speaking, when this is taking over, those people are going to think um, that they won the debate. Because, oh, look, see, all these people are using Fed coins, um, not Bitcoin. Um, with that in mind, you know, how, how do you think we might counter that? Do we explain well, people to people are, that the underlying unit of account that they're going for is Bitcoin?
2: I mean, pe- people are already using Fed coins um, uh, predominantly. That's what the dollar and all these government shit coins are. Only a small fraction of them are physical. So nothing that the central bank is introducing is in any way. Um, original or new it's it completely defeats the point um all that they would do i mean think about it what makes a digital currency like bitcoin and all these other currencies ignore all the hype and all the buzzwords even you know all of the bitcoin hype and buzzwords fundamentally what this is is a ledger with a private key public key combo that allows you to move funny digital virtual beans around the ledger that's it so this private key, public key combo means that if you have the private key, you get to move the money from A to B. So a central bank implementing it is just a central bank saying, all right, we don't handle payment transfer anymore. You know, you have money. We can't stop you as long as you have the private key. So that just doesn't make sense, which, you know, it, it is the contradiction that, you know, came up when you were saying well, who was, where do the private keys end up? They end up being private or public. Well, it's just... I mean, by its very nature, Bitcoin is just not meant to be public. It, it, it's it's called a private key, I think, and it, <laughs> and it means uh, it, 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 it's it's significant in that regard. So, um, they're not going to give that up, and they're not going to give up monetary policy. Those two things, central banks exist for them. So, Bitcoin is a replacement for them because it takes them out of the hands of people. So, they can't compete by saying, "All right." We're gonna offer something that doesn't compete with Bitcoin. That doesn't have this anyway. You know, it, it doesn't have anything. Yep.
1: Nope. Um, and then the the other thing that I hear people talking about is like having uh cryptocurrencies that are backed by. Gold or, you know, some other resource and it's funny because that that
3: never goes away. Yeah, they're talking about that since 2012
1: (laughs) Well, and I mean like Hayek was talking about that right of like having a a Currency that's backed by a basket of commodities. Uh, So it's kind of a perennial topic
2: yeah, Hayek, I don't know what the hell he was on at that point in his career. I think the, I think the charitable interpretation that I can come up with is that he knew that, coming in, that having a free market system like that would end up with the gold standard anyway, but just being implemented by yeah. a private market. Because the alternative of, you know, imagine I set up a private company and you know, I introduced a new currency, and I say that this is going to be backed by an assortment of, say, industrial and agricultural goods. Well, all that I'm doing is that I'm saying that, you know, I am making a market in that industrial good, you know, in iron and in zinc, I'm going to be buying it. That it's going to always be, say, 5% of my stash. And so no matter how much my the value of my money supply grows, I'm going to be continuing to buy copper. So copper miners are just going to keep making more and more copper to dump it into my monetary system. And so my monet, my currency would eventually end up being backed by enormous Quantities. If I wanted to really keep the the the, the, um, the 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 you know the honest businessman promise that I make of backing my currency by these commodities exactly by as much as I say, I'm just going to end up being an enormous warehouse for commodities and for producers of those commodities just dumping them as they sit and rot in my uh, warehouses. The on the other hand, any other business that does the same thing with a bunch of gold, they just have to keep a simple small warehouse and gold is not something that people can dump a lot of on the market and dump the price down. And so whoever runs the currency with gold will have the lowest operational cost and will offer people the best uh, hardest money and the best appreciation and will drive all the others out of business. So we'd end up with competitors who back it by commodities, but I think there would only be one commodity and that's gold. Right. But let's then, not hate too much on Hayek. I mean, let's face it. <laughs> if, if he hadn't, if he hadn't really sold out a little bit and spoken to the Keynesians in their terms, he wouldn't have gotten the Nobel Prize. And then most of us would have probably not even heard of Austrian economics. So That's let's of some slack.
3: Right. It, it it is funny. I mean, I'm imagining you know ICO shills talking about their stable coins and whatnot. Just like, well, even Hayek said, you know, yeah. you got to have your your basket of crypto commodities.
2: This is why you gotta check Rothbard before you, you know, embark on <laughs> anything based on what Hayek says.
1: <laughs> so, what, what do you make of these uh, like index funds of of cryptos, right? Where they've got like, and it's kind of silly because it's like eighty percent Bitcoin, but um, anyway, yeah.
2: Yeah, well, glad you asked because I'm uh, I'm I'm here to announce that I'm uh, going to be starting my own uh, multi <laughs> uh, culty coin fund. Which uh, no, I'm not. <laughs> um, I mean, you know, what we always say about all of these things, there's no point, none of these other coins will ever generate any a store of value demand. And So if any of them has any sort of functional value as a magical blockchain being for unlocking some magical um, blockchain um, buzzword somewhere, people will just buy it before they need that magical buzzword delivered and sell it as soon as they, you know, they have no reason to hold on to it. So I don't think that they would generate any demand in the long run. And so building a portfolio around uh, um, shit coins is just a shit for you, basically. And that's what the... But well, it's like
1: it. cargo culting a- equity investing, right? Where, where it yeah. does make sense to have a diversified portfolio
2: exactly and it's uh, you know there it's it's very different because you can have thousands and millions of different companies but money is different that's that's the point if we're going to have a digital money it's going to be bitcoin and yes diversify because i'm not i don't think that's certain i certainly don't expect it to be certain I, i'm not uh, telling people they should expect it to be 100% of course you need to diversify but you diversify with dollars and gold and real estate and talks and actual things. Things that are not 100% coins.
1: correlated. It's like all the shit coins are yeah. highly correlated to Bitcoin. So
3: what's the point?
2: Yeah, n- not an entry on some scammers' uh, Excel sheet. You know, that's fundamentally what it comes down to. <laughs>
3: well, it, It's funny to me how the language evolves to, you know, pump all these different, you know, uh, schemes. Uh, because if, you you know, one thing you can notice is how people, people don't talk with a lot of currency uh lingo around it they 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 move from saying things like cryptocurrency to oh this is a crypto asset yeah. so see you have a basket of assets um you know trying yeah, to continually obfuscate what you're actually dealing with
2: yeah i mean it's, it's insane why you would want a digital asset to do anything they're the only conceivable function would be a non-material function, which is money. And then other than that, all that you're doing with an asset is that it's transferring value. You know, there would be a, a proxy for value outside of it. But if it's digital, it's not scarce in its own. So that unless it can hold value for itself, then it's completely pointless. And so we're still yet to insult my one of these
3: kitty. <laughs>
1: Yeah, you know, there's collectibles, uh, so you can have your baseball cards uh, digitized, uh, it's all very exciting and it's the great new thing that we're building here.
2: I mean, imagine if we just undo the proliferation of information that the digital transformation allowed us and go back to making everything scarce again, you know, if if we undo 50 years of knowledge spreading and then we charge for everything think about that business model
3: (laughs) well it makes it makes sense that uh people especially like a a silicon valley person would want that because when they imagine less uh, or, or sorry more more of a barter economy that's more opportunities for you to step in yeah uh into every economic transaction ever so Uh, you know, they want everything and and not only, and they also want everything like monetized. Um, you know, God forbid someone just has sort of, you know, tacit, uh, you know, uh, values and knowledge and whatnot that they're, they're trading on as opposed to like, we need, we need to have exact prices for literally everything so that I can jump in and, you know, take a little bit of, of that.
2: Yeah, because, you know, people don't have an option to just route around you and use somebody else, you know, they're just gonna have to have no other way of, you know, having a picture of Michael Jordan, except from getting it from your blockchain. <laughs>
1: <laughs> All right, um, did, did, did you want to uh, announce uh, any events coming up?
2: We don't really have a date, but no, we have to do this. We've been talking about it for quite a while. We really need to do a Bitcoin beef and barbell um, seminar. I think we need to do it you in know, not a conference. There's not going to be any shilling and no suits and no, nobody's trying to sell anybody anything. I think what we want to do is um, just have it be an actual place where you go and learn vital life experience, and that is how to eat a lot of meat and why you should eat a lot of meat. How to grill meat properly, and that I'm happy to take charge of that. You know, we'll make a giant fire and we'll grill steaks for everyone, and we'll just learn the basics of how to make sure that you can cook a steak properly, which I think is essential survival skills. And we need to teach people that properly how to run nodes and manage private keys. I think we should just have an event around these things. Go somewhere, um, you know, have, oh, and of course, weightlifting, I should add. So, you know, we should get Sean Baker. That's that's really the idea. Have Sean Baker teach people about meat and weightlifting. I'll grill, and you guys teach people to manage their private keys and to run nodes. And we'll just hang out, spend a couple of days in the location um, learning the deadlift from Sean,
4: hmm.
2: grilling in the sun. Um, I think this is we have to do this. We have to. We've been talking about it for too long. But you know, maybe sometime February or March.
1: Let, yeah, let's throw up a like email sign up page and uh, see see how many uh, people input their emails and uh, figure out what the size and
2: scope of this is. Yes, absolutely. We have to start getting to work on it.
3: Yeah, well, there's definitely uh, fantastic you know locations here in Central Texas um, and around the Hill Country. So, uh, I think I think uh, Texas would be a a fantastic location for this. Um, and yeah, no, we we absolutely have to do this. This It's fantastic. And, you know, like you said, it would not be a conference per se in the sense of like you all sit and pretend you're interested in some different talks and stuff. You know, maybe there's, there might be some interesting, you know, optional talks, like someone just wants to give, Hey, I'm going to go, I'm going to be talking about this over here if you want to join. Uh, But with like not no expectations of having to go and and sit down and and listen to that kind of stuff. But really just, you know, get to get to hang out with the community and and share these kinds of skills with one another.
2: Yes, exactly. Something
1: that I have never seen before that I would be interested in would be. A butchering demonstration where they start out with the whole oh, cow yeah. and they explain the process, they explain the different cuts, the different names, the different ways of doing things. That that would be pretty interesting.
2: That is an excellent idea. Yeah, and we could definitely get somebody to come and help us with that.
3: There are good butchers in the area, and some of them know me by name now. So wow. we might be able nice. to make that happen. <laughs> <little
4: celebrity>. <laughs>
1: They're like I, they 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 go to like butcher conferences and they're like, do you get
3: do you know this bitstein guy? He's like <laughs> just eating meat. We need more of him. <laughs> I'm amazed. Like it, it, I, the the uh butchers and uh, ranchers and stuff. They're they're still not really aware of this uh, zeitgeist, this thing that's yeah. happening, um, and it's a shame. Like if, if only they knew. That they There's so are much marketing to-
2: opportunity that is so terrible at marketing compared to the people marketing the horrible garbage food that everybody eats. Like the ranchers are just, you know, the margins are so small and they're just happy enjoying their life, growing healthy food and eating healthy food themselves. They don't think like evil marketers, but they should. God damn it. They should be <laughs> sponsoring us to spread the evil meat eating propaganda around the world. They're not oh, absolutely! That. I mean, there
3: there was a there was a thread I I I retweeted it with a, a you know I quote retweeted it the the other day uh, going through the the network of people basically pushing uh, a, a specific component of I, I forget. Uh, which part of like meat is bad for you propaganda, there was like a there was a specific recent push, and it was just connecting all the dots and all the money um, and stuff. And like, there's a, you know, an evil sort of network of people, people pushing that. Um, And, you know, my, my response to that is that, well, that's how the media works. So, you know, you should create your own evil network of people pushing an idea. So, um, you know, we yeah, should, if you don't we make your own
2: echo chamber, you're not open minded. You're just <laughs> somebody in somebody else's little echo chamber. Exactly. <laughs> yeah.
3: So they have. There's the you know listeners who happen to be interested in this topic. You should listen, look into you know groups like the Seventh Day Adventists, um, the the you know uh, sect of of Christianity. They have been you know a, a massive influence on pushing. Ah, uh, vegetarianism, among other, uh, you know, uh, uh, ideas, um, in America since you know probably like the eighteen, like to say maybe the eighteen forties, but maybe it was the eighteen wow. sixties or so, um, and you see it tied everywhere. Ah, uh, John Harvey Kellogg was you know a major figure, um, in that. And we, safety just dropped off.
4: Uh, are oh, we, do we have him again?
2: Yep, I'm back. I'm
1: back.
3: Uh, I was just mentioning uh, Jar- John Harvey Kellogg uh, as one of the Yes, I was pushed. just going
2: to get to that. Yes. A very interesting guy to look for to to look at.
3: Yeah. So, I mean this this will of course be, you know, the, the Ribeye Standard will go into, you know, the the full story of the, yes. the economics of pushing crappy cornflakes on people.
2: Exactly. How how <laughs> how you went to soy over the last 45 years of fiat money, the full account. It starts with (laughs) Kellogg, really, and uh, goes all the way until uh, Dr. Greger and all these uh, vegan uh, uh, sarcopenic doctors telling people to eat nothing, basically.
4: Uh,
3: uh, while while we're on this topic, though, I mean, this is a, a question that, you know, the people who are a fan of you would actually care about these kinds of answers. Uh, you know, if people want to learn about, you know, gr- better grilling techniques and stuff like that, do you have any books you recommend or, or people like YouTube videos? Or...
2: There's a lot of stuff on the Internet. Um, I mean, a lot of people, Francis Malman is nice. He's the Argentinian... Uh, godfather of Argentinian grilling, He's uh, he's got a f- bunch of uh, movies and YouTubes and books you could read at. Um, he's pretty good. But really, grilling a steak is, is pretty straightforward. Uh, I'll just tell you what you need to know, a few important ideas. First of all, don't worry about anything um, like, say, spicing or um, marinating or you know the temperature of the steak before grilling it or whatever, all of that stuff doesn't really matter. There are a few things that really matter. Once you get these right, you'll be able to grill the steak properly, and then you can worry about everything else. The most important thing to do do is to make a lot of fire, a lot of heat. So ideally you make a lot of heat and you know just use a good amount of firewood or coal, charcoal, whatever it is, but make a big fire. If you're using firewood or charcoal, the key thing to know is don't drill the steak right on the fire flames, um, smash the wood or the charcoal down into a flat surface make it flat and with small little uh, embers and so that the flames die down, so that it stays red, it's very hot, but it, there are no flames. That's the ideal thing to cook at. So that's what you want to do. You want to make a big fire and then you want to smash the embers down and not let any flames be there and then put the steak on the embers, well, or you could actually put it straight on the embers. It's, it's, it's a very good way of cooking it, but you could also put it on the grill right above the embers. Put it on the first side, you know, just leave it on it for as long as it takes until that side becomes golden brown. Don't let it get black, and don't uh, slip it if it's uh, not golden brown yet, and then turn it on the other side, wait until the other side gets golden brown, and then take it off, and this is the hardest part, wait a couple of minutes before eating it. Take it off the fire, put it on a plate in front of you. This is the absolute hardest part about <laughs> cooking a steak. It's the test of time preference. I would have mentioned it instead of the marshmallow study, but of course, you know, American universities aren't going to do studies on steak, they do studies on marshmallows. And so you've got to wait a few more minutes on the steak after you've taken it off the fire, let it rest and then you can start eating that's it and then you know all everything else about um salt marinade whatever details doesn't matter just do that and then you can do whatever you want with the salt and marinade and the spices and it'll be all right
3: yeah i mean for me i i don't use too many spices and at this point like i've i've eaten enough meat and uh that doesn't have spices. So I've come to love just the flavor of meat by itself. So actually at this point if there is a lot of spices and marinades and anything like that I, it actually like bothers me because it's like no, I want to taste the meat. Like you're overloading me yeah. with taste uh, you know, foreign taste. I want to taste meat. I want flesh.
2: <laughs> Agreed. That's the only kind of food. Are,
3: are you a, Are you a medium rare medium?
2: You know this is. I say a lot of controversial things, but this might top them all. I don't mind well-done meat if cooked properly, particularly lamb. I like my lamb cooked um, pretty uh, well. I don't mind. Um, a lot of people disagree, but. I'm not afraid to take the controversial positions.
3: Yes. I mean, of course I, I take up controversial presi- positions too. On the other side where I eat it, you know, practically raw, if not completely.
2: raw. Oh, I love raw meat. Don't get me wrong. I love raw meat. I, i I mean, I'll eat any variety from all raw to shard, but, uh, <laughs> I think, you know, different meats, and different cuts will uh, have different prior different, uh, um, optimal doneness.
3: Yeah. I currently I'm, I'm, you know, I'm finally. You know, using a grill that's at my apartment building, and I'm trying to perfect, you know, the perfect black and blue steak.
2: <laughs> nice.
1: All right. On that note, I think we we got all the Bitcoin talking. We got all the meat talking. Um, so, go go check out uh, Safe Dean's Patreon. What's the URL? It's Patreon.com/slash. Dean. Okay. Perfect. And He's everyone knows letter. how to spell your name anyway, but it's <laughs> S-A-I-F-E-D-E-A-N. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I mean, these, these are like, these are real substantive uh, newsletters that are, are coming out that, and it's not like, they're not like news, like in the sense of, oh, here's what happened to Bitcoin this month. It's timeless yeah. uh, insights into yeah. this developing monetary system.
2: Yeah, there's no price analysis and there's no uh, moon and Lambo talk, unfortunately. If that's what you're in for, um, you might be disappointed. But you know, if you enjoyed reading the book, you might enjoy this. Think of it as like an extra chapter you get once a month.
1: You know, I, I would actually describe it as as a little more than an extra chapter in the sense that it's it's more advanced. Like it's uh, mm. a, it's like the the graduate, graduate level. level course. Yeah. Yes, thank you. <laughs> Uh, Actually, and, that's and, true, a,
2: book lot, book, a lot of the, the stuff writing. that I thought wouldn't, wouldn't appeal to a general audience, like for instance, the fractional reserve banking is just, it, it, it's a good way to kill a book because I think most people would just not pay attention and right. read anything past that. But uh, now I can, uh, I can get more uh, into this stuff with people yeah. who are into that kind of stuff.
3: Yeah, so basically, if you read the Bitcoin, I mean, you should absolutely read the Bitcoin standard first. Um, you know uh and if you read it and enjoy it if you don't enjoy it you know go go find out what's wrong with you do some soul searching uh once you realize how much you loved it and got stuff out of it if you're if you're interested in then taking it to the next level and digging deeper into you know bitcoin economics um you know the the research bulletin is is the place to go
2: fantastic thank you michael
1: uh, are you going to be at any uh, conferences coming up, or uh, uh, you, you'd finish your book tour that was highly successful? You ate meat on which? Did you eat meat on every continent?
2: Um, I I have actually yes. I've eaten meat in Africa, Asia, Europe, North America, and South America, except for Australia. I've eaten Australian meat, but I haven't uh. been to Australia. But yeah, well, Stefan Levera and uh, Bill Burden. Um, I think you guys need to up your game and get me over and uh, make me some good uh, Australian uh, beef uh, steak.
1: Well is Antarctica a continent as well? So maybe Yes. We need, we to, need to do to, something we need to get coming. down
3: there. Yeah. 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 Yes. Although I've I never think we only have whale. whale. <laughs> hey, I, I don't know. I've seen I've seen pictures of whale meat. I'd eat it. Okay. Yeah, the inuit yeah, the inuit we're hunting whales, which by itself is an incredible feat. Um, but they seem to love it. So, But I'm that's down. in the North
1: Pole. Maybe it's a different species. I, I don't know anything about whales. So what do I know?
2: This is going to be our yeah. project for the next summer after the Bitcoin Bar, <laughs> but it's going to be whale hunting in Antarctica. So sign up now. <laughs> it's
3: the, the graduate level. Of-
2: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Yeah.
1: Start sharpening
3: your harpoons.
2: Today. Exactly. Well, I mean, if you come and you show us good um, ability to eat meat, lift uh, weights and uh, huddle your private keys in the first conference, you might get a secret invitation to the whale hunting expedition in Antarctica.
3: <laughs> yes. I mean, look, you know, hu- humanity is, is built to hunt megafauna and that is what yep. we will do. <laughs>
2: exactly.
1: All right, this was fun. Uh, I look forward to doing this again, hopefully sooner. Uh, I can't believe it's already been a year. Um, do Do you have any, as you look back on the past year, do Do you have some some fond memories you want to point out?
2: Oh God, a lot. It's been quite eventful. Um, uh, where do I start? Well, all the fun on Twitter. Okay. Um The talks were quite interesting. Meeting the Bitcoiners was quite quite a fun part. I think maybe the most fun part of my book. The best part about it has been the fact that I've gotten to travel around a lot and meet a lot of Bitcoiners all over the world. And I think one interesting thing I'll note is that there's there's quite an a um, there's quite a distinct type of personality to the Bitcoiner that I would say. Um, there's something there's something about them. You know, I, I've been to Austria, Switzerland, Germany, France, and then all over the U.S. and Canada. And you know all sorts of different cities, different climates, different everything. But the bitcoiners in all these places seem to have a lot in common. They just always there's a certain type of personality which is quite easy to get along with, but also um, you know very nice and um, good, good mannered and so on. But also quite uh, set in their ways and um, with <laughs> quite a set of strong opinions about things. It, it it's quite interesting getting to meet them
1: yeah it, it selects for a certain psych, psychological uh psychology of person and it's it's just amazing to me like the the incredible quality of people that it's attracted um yeah. where even if like they're they're a Twitter account that has like a hundred followers that you know they're not using their real name or anything, but you meet them in yeah. person and they're like a very accomplished uh you know a highly intelligent person you're like wow that's not
3: what i was expecting right well and that that resolute character of the bitcoiner yeah. uh it, it, i was thinking on that recently you know the whole you know everyone going on about it being a bear market and all of that people making it seem like you know bitcoin is going anywhere it's like i don't i think you underestimate what these hodlers are like you know, no one yeah. is going anywhere, and these are not the kind of people you want to fuck with. Um, yeah, <laughs> the, the, this is this is another uh, you know this is another level of of you know people, and we do have our religious cult, and to have a religious cult of people like this <laughs> is you know a, a juggernaut.
2: Yeah, exactly. It's 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 just you know if you think about starting the next ten years, uh, this is quite a. Good company to keep uh, a, a, as you embark on the next ten years of your life. Like I, I really look forward to following up on what everybody's going to be doing in ten years from now. I think it'll be very interesting.
1: Well, even from one year from now, right? Like <laughs> everything is uh, evolving so quickly that uh, it's. It, yeah, I love it. Absolutely. All right. Any uh, last closing thoughts before we end the interview?
2: I think uh, that's about it for me.
1: Michael? That's it for me. All right. Likewise. Uh, thanks, everyone, for uh, joining us on the live feed. Uh, if you want to see future uh, Noted podcasts on the live feed, uh, join our Patreon, uh, patreon.com slash Noted, N-O-D-E-D. Uh, and, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll see you in, in cyberspace. <laughs> Bye.
2: Bye-bye.
5: One of the sections in the book, you talk about... Um, I believe the person's name was Lunchbox?
4: Lunchbucket. Lunchbucket. Lunchbucket, <laughs> right. Toral well, Lunchbucket. You know, bucket. since we're
5: talking about yeah. work environments and there's that certain level of camaraderie. And you actually talk about the SEAL teams in here yeah. where you just have this. It's like a non, and I've talked about this before. In the SEAL teams, it's nonstop hyperverbal abuse aggression. Around the clock, twenty four hours a <laughs> day, you're in a seal platoon. Yeah. Like that's the that's life. Yeah. Any any mistake that you make, any any display of weakness is going to be especially contemptible. Upon and ripped weakness. apart. Oh, oh yeah. it's, it's going like, to be ripped apart.
4: Yeah, yeah. And then if you get all irritated about that, it's oh. even worse. Man. Then <laughs> oh. you're just dead.
5: The <laughs> nicknames you, you talked about: lunch bucket. Yeah. Your nickname was Howdy Howdy Doody, howdy, yeah. Doody and it's then the it beginning. got shortened to Howdy, which was, yeah. was, was which, which was you better. felt pretty good about. It was better. <laughs> yeah, you went from Howdy Doody, which is kind yeah, of yeah, I know, was so good. To but... Howdy, which is kind of cool, right? Yeah. As a Western guy, yeah, yeah, whatever. Right, right, right. But, but the nicknames that 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 are in the SEAL teams, like I can't, with good conscience, repeat them. <laughs> I'm sure all, that's because true because they're just they're just horrible yeah, horrible yeah, names. Yeah, yeah. But. There's a camaraderie around that. And there's also the as I was reading what you had written about these guys working on a railway railroad, railway crew, yeah. There's a test. It's a test. Yeah, yeah. It's a test to see where you're at, That's what right. you're made of. That's right. can, can we rely it? on can, you?
4: Can you can you tolerate a little bit of irritation? If the answer to that is no. It's like, well, maybe we don't want you around then cuz some irritating things are likely to come down the pipe.
5: Yeah, and it's it's not just um it, it, to me, to me it proves if you've got someone that can take it, right? it's not just that they can take some random joking insults like they can they can, can take it they can take
4: it yeah that's what you're testing for yeah. it's like can you take it lunch bucket couldn't right because people would laugh at his lunch bucket and he'd get all upset it's like well you have a stupid lunch bucket it's like you know your mom packed it how about it? you laugh at yourself yeah my mom packed this i know it's kind of stupid that would have been the end of it he would have just had to say that yeah it's like but i didn't want to hurt her feelings it's like oh okay you know yeah. Fine, you got your stupid lunch bucket. And the, but no, he couldn't <laughs> handle that. You know? So yeah, it was, it was horrible and comical to watch at the same time because the level of... And people have written me about that and they said, oh, you know, poor lunch bucket. It's right. like, because they're all compassionate. I think, no, no, not poor lunch bucket. It's like, clue the hell in, buddy. You yeah. had your chance. You know, that was a desirable job, that rail crew job in the summer, because it was high paying. You know, and they weren't easy to come by those jobs And so the fact that he got hired onto that crew was a real opportunity for him You could make a pile of money in the summer at working on the rail crew and all you had to do was Take some ribbing with good grace not suck up to the management too badly and Not have other people do your job. That was all that was all you had to do But he couldn't do that. And so he got run off and it was like grow the hell up, buddy you know these guys when a 100 people are teasing you then probably they're not wrong <laughs> <laughs>
5: yeah when yeah. you are getting teased like that as well well when you when you when you stop reacting it's no longer fun yeah
4: yeah you, you know yeah, yeah. Well, it actually, also gives you an opportunity to tease back. It's like cause yeah. you can show your wit. And one of the things that working class guys, in particular, which is what one of the things I really loved about working class jobs, is that they're, they're always looking for some humor. So it's like if, if person A is teasing person B, that's kind of comical. But if person B comes back with a good Zero. comeback, it's like <laughs> that's even better, you know. So I think that's a lot of how those jobs are rendered tolerable, right? It's they're, they're hard dirty jobs. Right. Dishwasher is a good example. That's not dangerous. Although cooking is, is you know, you've got to watch your step. I got burned a lot when I was cooking. Um, but what makes those jobs not only tolerable, but even desirable is that you can develop a tremendous amount of camaraderie around them. I've never really experienced that at a professional level job. That just doesn't happen the same way. And it's really, there's a real loss in that. So it's 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 fun to be part of a team that's doing, you know, grubby hands-on things and and having a ridiculously entertaining vicious, cruel and evil time while you're doing it. That's very entertaining.
5: <laughs> the uh this new kids book I wrote. So uh the kid Mark, he's getting made fun of by this he's a different kind of bully. He's like a mental bully mm. that that verbally abuses people and he gets called plate face by this character. And to, and eventually he gets in trouble for throwing something at the kid because he's calling him plate face plate face. But eventually, the way he befriends the kid is by mm-hmm. he they have to do a self portrait in class and he draws a picture of himself looking like a plate. Mm-hmm. And he shows it again. The kid laughs and all of a sudden they're buddies. And it's mm-hmm. like that's what you do. You take away that, you take away the joy, of of being so heated and irritated by people that are making fun of you and you just kill it right
4: jitsu in some sense yeah, well yeah. i had an experience with that about three years ago i put my videos up online and People kept saying that I sounded like Kermit, and I thought, well, one person said it, and I thought, well, whatever. But then, like five people said it, and I thought, oh my God, like this Kermit thing. So then I went and listened to Kermit, and I thought, oh no, it's like, it's like really, I really sound like Kermit, you know. And so then, well, then I started to play with it a little bit, you know. I used the puppet, and mm-hmm. when, I, when I when I went to speak to university students, and I made frog jokes, and then I made a vid, I made a couple of videos. <laughs> that sort of featured me as a frog. and I mean, it's crazy, right? It's ridiculous. But, but, that's, and, but, but the teasing never got mean because of that, you know? Yeah. And the same things happened online to a larger degree, as people keep making memes of me. Like, and there's, I don't know, there's lots of them. There's way too many to even keep track of. And <laughs> I was watching that happen, and I thought, okay, this is a good thing because there's humor, and wherever there's humor, that's a good thing. And they're making fun of me, but it's gentle, You know most of it was pokey you know like well you sound like this damn puppet what do you think of that it's like well if i had to pick someone to sound like probably wouldn't be a puppet but if it had to be a puppet kermit's not a bad one it could be a lot worse like it could be miss (laughs) peggy it could have been that you know so thank god that didn't happen but the memes have never got vicious because you know i'll post them if they're funny and satirical and then they won't get vicious because they don't have to. It's like, can we poke fun at you? It's like, yeah, please do. And the more the better, really, because that'll also help keep my feet on the ground and keep me awake. And plus it's funny. And like one of the things about life is that a sense of humor, that's a good thing to, to arm yourself with because sometimes you just don't have anything other than that.